Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. Come quick. What? It's catching me. That worked. As he ran to Jesus, Jesus looked intently at him. Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas or Peter. Have you ever felt seen in your life? When someone really sees you, this must have been Jesus, Peter's moment to feel seen. Because from that moment on, he was all in. So where did Jesus go next? Jesus went to a wedding. And um, so Peter followed Jesus to the wedding. And what happened at the wedding? The wine ran out. And so Jesus performed his first miracle. He turned the water into wine. Imagine Peter watching this going, whoa, this man is something. Let's keep following. Where do we go next? Jesus went on a family trip with his mother and brothers, so Peter came along. <laughs> it's a bit of a creep. Came along, and he was just watching Jesus, watching, watching, and he must have been fascinated because he kept following. And next, Peter went to the temple of Jerusalem where he got really mad, and he made a whip. I was just thinking, how long does it take to make a whip? He made a whip and he chased the people out who were making money and exploiting the poor right in the temple courts. And then he took the um, coins of the unethical money changers, changers and he poured out all the coins. He overturned the tables. Peter was watching. Whoa, he is something, right? And then... Peter saw Jesus talking to a woman. Respectable Jewish men didn't talk to women. It was a Samaritan woman. Good Jewish people avoided the Samaritans like a plague. And then Jesus went to the Samaritan village and spent two whole days there. Peter was like, ah, are we even allowed to do this? But he kept following now, Peter was following Jesus, but he had a day job. He was a fisherman, as I very successfully displayed there. Um, he was a fisherman. And over a period of 18 months, he continued hanging out with Jesus in his free time, and he watched Jesus. He watched Jesus. And finally, Jesus, the day came. Jesus said, Peter, drop your nets. Drop your day job. No more fishing for people. Come, I'll teach you to fish no more fishing for fish. I Come, I'll teach you to fish for people. So Peter, being Peter, didn't have to think twice, and he followed Jesus. And then Peter really saw it. Jesus taught amazing things. Some new things, mainly old things in new ways. He healed the sick. He raised the dead, cast out demons. He forgave sins. Whoa. More and more people followed Jesus, and Peter got more and more excited. And when Jesus asked for a volunteer, Peter said, me, me, me. When Jesus didn't ask for a volunteer, Peter said, me, me, me. Sounds like me. And then one day, out of the more than 100 followers Jesus had, 
He picked 12 to be the leaders, the apostles. Guess what? Peter got chosen. Not only that, he got chosen first. He won. Imagine the exhilaration for Peter. And I imagine when Jesus said, okay, now the 12 of you, I'm going to send you out. Peter starts running. Peter, come back. Haven't finished talking yet. Come back. It's just so excited. Gung-ho, confident, overconfident, had to be the first, had to answer every question, had to ask every question. And most of the time he got it right, but other times he got it so bad, so wrong. And one time he got it so wrong that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And yet that whole time, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. The three that Jesus would sometimes take with him to some place and some mission. Peter was always Peter. He was brash, impulsive, and what you saw was what you got. But he was genuine. He really loved Jesus. And then things became a little somber, and Jesus started saying funny things. And then Jesus said, all of you guys are going to leave me. And Peter said, I will never leave you. Even if everybody leaves you, I will not leave you. Jesus said, yeah, you will. Nope, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. It was true for Peter. It was so true for him. And yet after Jesus was arrested, and when people recognized uh, Peter as one of the apostles, Peter said, no, no, I, I don't know him. And then he did it again the second time. And then the third time he denied Jesus. Three times he denied knowing Jesus. And he ran again. This time he ran out and wept bitterly. Poor Peter. He meant it. He really, really, really loved Jesus. He followed Jesus all this time, didn't he? He dropped everything and followed Jesus, didn't he? But when the pressure came, he broke, he crumbled. Oh, the disappointment and the shame he must have felt. I know that feeling well when I disappoint my Lord. Have you ever felt that feeling? I'm such an idiot. I'm such a fool, such a coward. And then Jesus died. What? No. No. No, this is not right. Peter's dreams and hopes dashed, and the depression he must have felt, and the fear. They hid. The apostles hid, afraid that they would get arrested too. And then three days after Jesus died, Mary Magdalene came running to John and Peter. This time Mary was running, saying, Jesus' body's gone. What? So what did Peter do? He ran. Again, he ran. Unfortunately, this time we found out that Peter is actually not a very fast runner. He ran a lot. He just wasn't very fast because John outran him. John got there first, but John didn't go in. He was looking in the tomb. But Peter came. He had to be first. Push John away. I I added that bit. Push John away. And Peter went in first. And then they saw it. The linen linen that had been wrapped around Jesus' body was there. But the body wasn't there. And the piece that was wrapped around Jesus' head was there, neatly folded. (sighs) 
Peter finally understood. It was true. It is true all along. Didn't he say that he would die and rise again on the third day? And here it is. His dreams and hopes were alive again. And then later, Jesus appeared to Peter and the rest. On a couple of occasions, Jesus appeared before them. But I wonder, how did Peter look at Jesus? Did he volunteer anymore? Did he look at Jesus in the eyes? Did, did he wonder if Jesus knew that he denied Jesus three times? How did Jesus look at Peter? I suspect it was an elephant in the room. Didn't talk about it. But one time, um, Peter went back to fishing. Didn't know what to do anymore now. You know, go back to fishing. And then Jesus appeared on the beach. Peter on the boat, Jesus on the shore. And when Peter was looking, it is Jesus. What did Peter do? Peter, in all his Peterness, as Christy said, jumped into the water and swam to the shore and leaving everyone with the boats and they can handle that, you know. And he got to the boat and what did Jesus do? Jesus had cooked breakfast. Peter's favorite fish and bread. <laughs> this time, Jesus looked at Peter and Peter went, oh no, he's going there. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus allow Peter to reaffirm his love? Three times. Not only that, not just forgiven, and then Jesus entrusted his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. His sheep was his everything. He entrusted his sheep, his most beloved, to Peter. And he's saying, Peter, you've got it this time. Jesus restored Peter. From then on, we could truly see Peter maturing. From the brash young man, he grew to become one of the main apostles leading the ministry. He was the first to stand and preached when the Holy Spirit was poured out, of course. And he preached, 3,000 people came to faith and the church was born. And putting into practice what Jesus taught him and showed him, he led the church. He fed Jesus' lambs. He was arrested but this time he didn't deny Jesus. He was brave. He was strong. Um, when things got tough, he didn't go back to fishing. He persevered. He healed the sick. 
performed miracles, but credited God, didn't let his head grow big this time. He matured, yet maturity does not mean perfection. Paul confronted Peter. You see, Peter knew God took Peter on a journey to let Peter know that the gospel is for the Jews and the Gentiles. And Peter was happily hanging out with the Gentiles until some Jews came along and Peter were not going to hang out with you guys. And Paul confronted him for his hypocrisy. Peter was maturing, but he wasn't perfect and he knew it. He must have taken the rebuke well because he didn't leave the church. He continued leading the church. He fed Jesus' sheep. He eventually wrote letters to the Christians who were scattered across the Roman Empire. You can read these letters in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Peter. He encouraged the Christians to persevere and stay strong in the face of suffering and persecution. Peter himself was eventually martyred, killed for his faith. Do you remember that when Peter first ran to Jesus and Jesus looked intently at him? and gave him a new name, I wonder, how did Jesus look at Peter? Was it with judgment, with tenderness, with fascination, with anticipation, with hope? Or did Jesus already look at him and see all the failures and the mistakes before he even made them? How did Jesus look at Peter when Peter said he would never leave Jesus? And Jesus knew he would. Did Jesus look at him with judgment, with pursed lips and a knowing look with hope or with compassion, knowing what Peter would feel when he finally denied Jesus. How did Jesus look at Peter when he asked Peter if he loved him three times? How did Jesus look at Peter when he stood up and preached, when he was arrested and he stayed strong, when he performed miracles and didn't grow proud? when he took a rebuke well, when he was arrested, tortured, and killed for Jesus. How did Jesus look at Peter? When he runs, I walk. (laughs) How did Jesus look at Peter? But the question for you and me today is, how is Jesus looking at you? Right now, how is God looking at you? Your first reaction may say a lot about your relationship with God. Your second may go a little bit deeper Your third reaction may go nowhere because it's an awkward question. How is God looking at you? Take time to ponder. I remember the first time I was asked this question, I thought, what a dumb question. Any question I can't answer is a dumb question. (laughs) But you see, when I was asked that question, I was living in a space of disappointment of perceived failure, of despondency, feeling sadness of life, and feeling that my life was over, all I could see was a very negative, dark failure, Sandy. And I really and truly believed that God was disappointed in me and finished with me. And I still had a few years to live, and I wondered how I would survive. In that dark time, the truth was I knew there was something more. And it was that sense of 
God, being God, and that faith in God that drew me on. So today I'm going to look at just how we can hit walls and be in dark places which can be turned around and be the most productive and fertile for the next period of our time. You see, it's not wrong to go there. It's healthy as long as we don't stay there and we allow Jesus through the Spirit, through the Word, through the community of faith to get in and to help us see what Jesus sees. We've worked through some stages of discipleship and, or apprenticeship during these last five weeks. Um, I would like to say that a lot of the background reading that we've been involved in as a speaking team has been podcasts from John Mark Comer on naming your stages of apprenticeship. Great. Except he did it over six weeks an hour each, but I, we didn't think that you would really quite cope with that. But you can listen to it in the car or walking or wherever. So I would uh, advise that. I would also advise that you look at some of the work of Dallas Widard. So a lot of the shaping has come from those resources. We listen to come and see, come and follow, come and learn, come and practice, come and trust, and the journey goes on, and guess what? It's always come and see, come and follow, because it is not linear, it goes backwards and forwards and over and around. And if you're anything like me, you hate backtracking, you like to think, done that, been there, move on. But with the Christian life, sometimes it's coming back and moving on and going in circles, but the going back is taking us deeper and deeper into knowing who we are and who our God is, so that we can love well and we can be what Jesus wants us to be and fish for people. So we've looked at some uh, practices, some rhythms along the way. How's the power of the pause? You've been using that, reminding each other, stop, breathe. Breathe in the love of God, the beauty of creation. How's your gratitude? Still thanking God regularly, over and over? Even if it's the same thing every day, don't worry. Stay there. Keep thankful. Be grateful. Look for stuff. Meditation, silence. Are you reading Mark with some others so that you're chatting and talking and discovering in chunks or small, little bits or the whole book at once? Just keep it because we want to learn Jesus. That's an old-fashioned say, saying. It's an old-fashioned concept, but I can't uh, get away from it because that's what we want to do. We want to learn Jesus as we listen to him. Now, I admit that some of this is saying, add stuff to your life. It's about doing. But we're not really saying, put more into your life. It's probably look at your life through the lens of these rhythms of grace, as we've called them, or the practices of disciples, so that we can live well and full and abundant lives. People will often say to me, Sandy, you're busy. Well, they might see me on a day where I've got things going on. But I use busy as a swear word. No. I say to them, I don't do busyness. 
Now, it might be that day my life is full, like today. But there are moments when it's slowed down, when it's very quiet and very gentle. And so it's not a matter of taking great chunks. It's trying to remember that we can be aware throughout the day of who our God is. We can be alive to what God is doing in this world. We can become more like Jesus as we go slow and allow that kind of work of the Spirit in us. We can learn Jesus and practice what Jesus did. We've only had five weeks at this. Uh, I've had 76 years at this. When he's had about, I won't say, she'll be angry with me. Uh, When you're old like me, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, the journey takes time. And the journey will be up and down. And remember last week, up and down, cyclic, all the kind of things going on. But a lot of our growth will depend on how we respond to the chaotic world in which we live. We do live in a chaotic world, and sometimes our worlds are very chaotic. And so the growth happens from something within that helps us respond well. Does that make sense? And we'll look at that something. Uh, Today, I want to talk about the goal of the journey. Now, I'm not talking about heaven today. We will get there. And fortunately, that is our hope and our desire. I'm talking about how we live out our eternal life now. Because look what Jesus said in John 17, verse 3. The definition of eternal life is, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Jesus is saying this. They may may know you, God, and the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That is the goal of our life, knowing and being known by our God. This is living out this eternal life. So our journey of knowing and being known is the goal of our life. And the goal is love. 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 Wanting the best for me, for others for God in this world. But when I look at a definition of love, and I'll I'll go to the very well-known passage of 1 Corinthians 13, I look at definitions of love, descriptions of love, um, the outworking of love. Love is patient, love is kind, you know, all this kind of stuff. Some of us, some of us have to read it because we can never remember it, a bit like the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Love isn't envious, love isn't boastful or arrogant. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Help. I don't live like that. The main problem when we read something like this is we pursue the byproduct. You got that? So I pursue kindness. I think, yeah, I can be kind. Well, so can my atheistic next-door neighbour, sometimes kinder than me. So can my Hindu family over the road. They can be kinder than me. Pursuing kindness doesn't always mean I love well. I can pursue patience. 
There's no one as patient as the Chinese government. <laughs> Keeps no record of wrong. Somehow in the back of my mind, that one's hard. Bears all things. So if I pursue the byproduct, I have problems because I can't do it alone and my kindness runs out and I'll say, I'm sick of being kind to everyone in the world. Why can't someone be kind to me? You've been there, done that? Yeah. Uh, the main problem, of course, is that we don't go to the source. The source is love. The source is God. God, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, God in community, where love is acted out, where the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, the Spirit loves... See that community of love? That's where love comes from. I cannot love well, wanting the best for God's kingdom in this world, wanting the best for you, the best for me, the best for all, if I do not know this love, this God. I want to share historically, so we're going to go a little bit into a, one of the uh, monks. This is before there were Catholics, so don't get over, don't worry. Okay, they've teach us a lot too. So I'm not talking about um, where this comes from. It comes from the 1090 to 1155. And this Bernard of Clairvoy has become a pivotal man in the teaching about love. Not only him, but there were many before him, but he talked about four stages, which Christendom has taken since then as very important. It doesn't matter which brand of church you come from. This is where we look at the journey of love. And he said our first love is egocentric self-love. You don't have to be a mother of a two-year-old to know that. True? Or a teacher of a classroom of five-year-olds. Or work with adults who've never had a healthy lifestyle. Now, that egocentric love doesn't mean to say they love themselves in a good way. It means they can be protective. It means they want to survive. It means they'll be reactive, protective kind of stuff. And that first love is the love that we need to grow out of. Now, it doesn't mean to say sometimes those people can't be kind. They can because they want something from you. <laughs> Okay, or they want to be treated well. So that egocentric love. But we fall in love with Jesus, that next stage. I wish we had a lot of time to go through this, but we don't. We meet Jesus and we start to follow Jesus and we suddenly discover that Jesus can do something in us that no one else has ever done before. And I, I can sing songs and I... It's just amazing. Somehow or rather, I can confess my sins and know I'm forgiven. I can come to a community. I can join a group. And suddenly, everything is wonderful for a week or two. And then I discover that I still sin or I have some strife. But it's okay because I learn to serve and I'm, I'm enveloped into this community where we give and take and life is hype and, you know, it's just wonderful. And we love God mainly because of what God does for us. Okay? We love God for that. And in this stage, we are not much different from non-followers of Jesus. Because our love is in that romantic, 
honeymoon stage. And uh, a lot of our non-Christian friends can still love well at this stage and behave well, even though we are learning and we're forgiven and some things have happened. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, this second stage of love is where many people can sit in a church forever and be thankful for what God has done for them because they've got a ticket to heaven and all will be well eventually. And the love doesn't really go much further. And so little cliche sayings can come out. God is in control. Uh, God will work this out. I just wish he'd hope, I wish I could go to heaven quicker. And so we live superficially in this relationship. But for many people, it's not satisfactory. And they hit a wall and they either leave the church or they say there must be more. There must be more. And there is. And I, I just want to do a, a little side comment here. Uh, we're doing four stages of love, but I want to talk about four kinds of sin that God starts to work in our lives at this stage where he wants to deal with us. There's those big, ugly, gross sins where we just don't do that anymore. We're forgiven, okay? We don't blaspheme as much. We're learning not to. We don't swear as much, especially around the Christian church. We, we don't uh, blatantly do stuff. And, and that's fine. They're the gross sins. We know forgiveness, and if we do sin, we know it and we confess. We somehow learn the behaviors of Christian, and we can do it, okay? That next level of sin, so they're gross sins. The next level is what I call the conscious sins. Well, in this book, which I'd recommend for anyone here, this is the Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I discovered, to my delight that my message was from here too, but I hadn't read it before. So he actually has a little bit thing here, a grid for searching and meaning about the kinds of sin that we need forgiveness from, okay? So that's right at the book. Great book, recommend it to you. So he talks about the conscious sins where we still deliberately sin. We know we're sinning. But it's not as gross as what a murderer is or a burglar or a thief from taking things or shoplifting. But we can still steal people's ideas and we can still lie and we know we're doing it, okay? So it's a knowing that we are not doing the right thing. We know that we've gossiped and slandered and done a whole lot of things. We know that we've got addictions. We know that we've looked at pornography and we shouldn't. We know that we've gone over. We haven't spent time reading. We know this. But then there's the next level, which we call the unconscious sins. And these are more cultural sins where certain ways of living are right and we haven't really come to terms with that. Let me just talk about one. One, one would be a arrogance or superiority about our being Australian. I know we're not all Australian here, but anyhow, I didn't know I was arrogant about being Australian. I was superior or racist until I went to another country and they didn't eat the food I ate. They didn't use knives and forks. I had to eat food with my hands. How dare I eat food? And I had to eat it with the right hand. And 
okay, I'm exaggerating, but it was in there, that superiority, that judgmental attitude, where the cultural unconscious sins were there. And I had to look at how do I live authentically here? Bit, bit soon there, but you can keep playing, it's all right. Uh, then we come to the uh, last one, and this is where I think some of us constantly have to come. It's our trust structures. Who do I really trust? Can I trust God in this? Can I do that? Can I trust God? That is why right at, in John 21, which uh, Winnie alluded to this morning and took the message from there, right at the end, Jesus still says to Peter, follow me. The call is constantly follow. Yes, God, I trust you. I don't understand. I haven't got a clue what's going on. It's dark. It's different. I'm in chaos. It's mess. Or it's beautiful. It's good. I'm still called to trust you. Have you got the idea there of those levels of sin that God wants us to deal with, which is why we need to pray, forgive me for sins known and unknown as I forgive others. But that's a message for another day. We're still going on to stage three of our love, and this one's pretty um, simply. We love God for God's sake. Despite our circumstances, we can come, we can worship, we praise, we enjoy God for who he is. We start to see creation differently. We start to see life differently. And it's all because of who God is. But the elephant's still in our heart, not in the room, because we still live with ourselves. I've got a question. And this is the question I want you to ask yourself regularly. Do you like God? I'm not saying, can you sing the songs? I'm saying, do you like God? If not, it's okay to tell him I don't like you because I'm disappointed. I don't like you because I didn't get the job I wanted. I don't like you because my children seem to be worse than anyone else's children. I don't like you because I don't get enough money as everyone else does. You got the idea? We need to say it and be honest because we have to be honest about this God we hang around with. And does God like you? Does God look on you with eyes of love? Because the last goal is love. We don't get here very often and we don't stay here. Peter didn't stay there very long. Do you love me? Jesus said, do you love me? Yes, Jesus. You know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus talks about the kind of death he was going to have. And it was going to be martyrdom, killing. Which is a bit of a wake-up call when you've just said, I love you. Being commissioned, I'm going to die. And so what does Paul immediately, Peter immediately do? He's in this beautiful moment. He's in the moment of being with God, looking at Jesus, eye-to-eye contact, love there. And Peter says, what about him? Immediately, the competition, the old style. We have that. But the goal is loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because unless we do that well, we can't love ourselves so that we're free to acknowledge our weaknesses, our strengths, our giftedness, our shortcomings, who we are in this world so that we can love our neighbor well. I cannot love you until I learn to love myself. It's too superficial. Wanting the best 
for you, cheering you on, rejoicing with you when you rejoice, celebrating you when you do it better than me. This is our God. We are called to love. The last stage of our journey is love. So how is God looking at you? How do we learn to love? Let's just sit for a moment. We are the greatest hindrances to being able to receive God's love. We need help. The interesting thing is when, we get, when it gets a bit sticky and we get to know ourselves, we want to run and we close off and isolate ourselves and we don't do community well. It's in community. It's through the Spirit. It's through the Word that the Spirit can touch those things in my heart that stop me from loving well. Forgiveness, the practice of the pause, meditation, journeying with others, allowing God's Spirit to touch my spirit. I can't love, my love runs out, but the love of God is shed abroad in my heart through the Holy Spirit, which is given. God's love is pure gift. It's grace. It's mercy. It's available to everyone. You don't purchase it. You don't buy it. You don't beg it. It's gift. It's God. God's love never runs out. The love of God shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us who believe. Love of God flowing through so that I can love myself well, love my God well, and love you. May we pray. Thank you, Lord, that the greatest command you said was that we were to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the greatest thing about this commandment is that the gift of you, yourself, your love, makes this possible day by day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray that we would be receivers of love and givers of love. Amen.